does it take to actually grow your marriage, to change your marriage for the better? Well, I am Sheila from To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, the blog where we like to talk about how to make marriage into a passionate adventure and not just a to-do list. And on this week's podcast, we're going to be talking about exactly that. How do you change a marriage? I took a look this morning and I have written over 2,776 posts. That's a lot of posts. And in each of those posts, you know, I'm trying to give people tips and tricks to solve different marriage problems. I usually think to myself, okay, what's a problem people have? And that's usually not difficult to figure out because of all the emails I get. And, And how can I fix it? Or suggest things that might help. But then I started to notice some really funny things. For instance, I wrote a post a while ago called Four Things You Must Do If Your Husband Uses Porn. I still link to that post all the time. It's just one of the uh, the pillar posts on the blog because porn is such a huge issue. And so here, if your husband uses porn, these are four things you absolutely must do. And then on that post, I will get comments, and I think there's hundreds on that post by this time, where... A woman will tell her story, which is legitimately really, really sad about her husband dealing with porn, and then she'll say, so what should I do? And I'm always a little bit confused by that question, because isn't that what the post was for? Like, to suggest what you should do? (laughs) So why is it that people will read a post on, like, 10 things that you can do about this, or four things you need to do if this is happening, and then they'll still say, so what should I do? And as I've seen this crop up over and over again, I have a theory. I think many people are searching for a very easy thing that will guarantee a change in their marriage. And a lot of times the things that I suggest aren't necessarily easy because there isn't an easy fix. Now, there is no magic formula. You just have to do these things, even if it's really tough and your marriage is worth it. Okay, but that's when we're talking about a big problem like porn. What if it's a smaller problem? Like maybe there's just something under the surface of your marriage. It's always there, but it's not really jeopardizing your marriage. There's nothing, there's nothing totally wrong that's going to cause you to completely drift apart. There's just things like you feel resentment because he doesn't put his laundry in the hamper. Or you feel guilty because he wants sex more than you do and you feel like you disappoint him a lot. There isn't a magic formula that is going to fix your marriage entirely and get rid of all these problems without us having to do something. Your marriage doesn't just change because you're hoping that it will or because you wish it will or because we can find that one magic way of explaining something to our husband so that he will do a 180 and start doing things completely differently. No, it's usually that we have to do something. We have to change our attitudes. We have to start acting differently. We have to start drawing more boundaries. We have to start being kinder. We have to learn love languages, like whatever it is. But there is some action step that we have to take. And so that's really what my blog and this podcast is about. I want to help people find those things that they can do that can actually start putting you in the direction of change. Now, that doesn't mean that every post is about action steps, because frequently our beliefs actually dictate our actions or influence our actions. And I'm going to give you an example. And so allow me this detour for a minute. Okay, I'm going to circle back to this whole idea of how what we do can change in marriage and how we need to change how we act. But there also is an element of our beliefs 
also need to shift. So let me give you an example of how beliefs can influence how we act in a marriage and how changing our beliefs can change how we act. Okay, this is a pet, this is a pet one of mine. There's two different big ideas about what marriage looks like, especially in the church. One idea says that God created the genders very differently. The husband is the one who is supposed to take leadership over the marriage. He is the one who is supposed to make the decisions or at least make the final decision. And the wife's job is to follow her husband and submit to him. So it's a very husband-centric model where the wife follows what the husband wants to do. Uh, The other model says that God made marriage as a partnership where the main job for each spouse is to follow God's will and that they serve God together. And so they're supposed to seek God's voice together. And because of that, uh, they serve each other and they come to agreements together. So one person does not have veto power. Now, I think it's obvious for any of you who have read my blog or read my books, which side I fall on that, which is that I I really believe that our purpose on this life is to follow Jesus. And sometimes the way we talk about marriage makes it sound like the wife's purpose is to follow the husband. Uh, And I do not believe that the husband is women's mediator uh, with God. However, these two different views of marriage actually can impact how we act. And I want to give you an example of that. Let's say that you believe strongly. The main thing that God wants for women is that we follow our husbands and allow him to make the decisions. Because after all, there's only a few verses about marriage in the Bible. And in those verses, in one of those few verses, it says, you know, women submit to your husbands in everything. And so that must mean that to be a good wife, the main thing that I am doing in being a good wife and in showing that I love Jesus is to do what my husband wants. If the guy has to make the final decision, then there's another assumption that's going on, one that's kind of unstated and it's even below the surface, but it's that marriage is going to be a relationship where we disagree a lot. After all, if God spent all of this time thinking, okay, what is the one thing I want to tell wives to do? And that one big thing that God wants to tell wives to do is to let your husband make the decisions. Well, then it must be that he's going to need to make decisions an awful lot. Like it must be that marriage is full of disagreements and my role is to go along with what my husband says. So what does that do? I think there's two big things it does. First of all, it makes you assume that things are disagreements when they're not. See, if you assume that you're always going to be disagreeing and he's going to make the final decision, then what's going to happen if you get married and you start to feel distant? You know, you feel like you're not communicating, like he might not really love you. And you think, well, I guess we're just uh, not getting along. And I guess I'm just not understanding how to properly submit to him. And you figure that my needs aren't as important and I need to do what my husband wants. Well, what if it's just that you don't understand each other's love languages? Or what if it's that you're having major misunderstandings about the fact that you're an extrovert and he's an introvert and you need time to be able to talk about the things that are going on in your head if you're going to feel cherished? You know, these are these are just basic differences. They have nothing to do with an actual disagreement, but they crop up in marriage all the time. And if we see marriage through a lens where we are always going to be disagreeing, then you may short circuit a lot of basic communication issues, which could actually be solved because you think the answer is to submit to what my husband wants rather than to work this through. 
And then there's another way you can short circuit things. So this is the second thing that that assumption can do. It makes you short circuit the resolving conflict process because you think he's got to make the decision if you disagree. So instead of wrestling it through and coming to an agreement together, you may think, well, we disagree and I guess I need to go along with what he says. Whereas if you believe that marriage is a place where you're both going to serve God together, where agreements will be normal and where the default is that you will be in unity without having to defer to him, then when there's a disagreement, you're going to think, okay, hold on a second here. This is something we can solve. And it makes you approach these issues very differently. It's like, okay, we're just not communicating here. How do we get back on the same page? Or, okay, we really disagree about this issue. So how can we pray about it, seek other people's counsel, so that we can figure out a solution. So that's why our beliefs do matter. Our beliefs do often determine our actions. And if you want to read more about that, please take a look at Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage, because I do debunk a lot of the ways that Christians talk about marriage and show a much better way through, especially when you are having disagreements. All right, now I'm circling back, okay? So all of that was my detour. Now I'm going to circle back to this idea that, yes, we need our fundamental beliefs right, but then on a daily basis, if you really want growth, then you have to actually do something. Last week, I took a survey of my email list. I wanted to know what topics people were interested in, um, what products I should make next, and some of the things people chose were actually really surprising to me. I put one on um, an e-course for people who are having pain during sex, and I thought that was such a niche problem that not very many people would want it, but actually about 20% of women said they were interested in that, so that, that kind of scared me. I mean, I certainly will make it soon, but... Wow, I went through that too, but I had no idea that that many people on my list are suffering from it, and that's much higher than you would normally see um, on a general population list, so kind of interesting. <laughs> my most popular post is people want a course on how to get healthy together, so Rebecca and I will think about that, and then of course people want the course on how to reach orgasm. But as well as asking these questions, we also asked about people's marriage satisfaction and about which products they owned. So I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to invite Joanna on because I want her to tell some interesting stuff about some of the stats that we found. And Joanna has a toddler at home. And so that toddler is going to be talking and we're all just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> so, so you can, you, all of my listeners, probably a lot of you can understand. But hello, Joanna. Hi. And Mari, can you say hi? You're not going to play on that's fine. That was an attempt at something cute. <laughs> that's okay. She'll say it in a minute. Okay. Okay. So, so. Yes, there's Mari. So here's here we here's what we did, Joanna, right? Like we asked people um, what products they had bought, but then we also asked about their marriage and sexual satisfaction, right? Yes, yeah. We asked them which products they had bought, and then I, I turned those variables, just, and I collapsed it into had they bought anything um, of yours. So, or had they been given it? So any of your books, any of the courses, um, the Sexy Dares product, it, it was really a very big tent for what we were looking at. Right, and what, what was the overall thing that you found? Um, so essentially, I was really excited when I ran the numbers. It took me a long time to get all of the data where I needed it to be to get everything coded correctly. And then I ran the numbers, and I knew you were on vacation with your family, but I decided that it was a big enough deal that I should just call you because <laughs> <laughs> what I found was that buying your products was associated with having a higher marital and sexual satisfaction. So essentially, if you had any of the products, your odds of having a sat uh, being satisfied in your marriage were 1.5 times higher 
and your odds of being sexually satisfied were 1.25 uh, times higher. So it was definitely like we really did see an effect in um, having, yeah, I know it was really exciting, wasn't it, Mari? Yeah, I actually thought that maybe people who bought my stuff might have lower sexual satisfaction because, like, why would you buy it unless you were having problems? Um, so that actually made me feel better. So I thought, yay, we're doing something right, um, which was really encouraging. So, yeah. Absolutely. If you're investing in your marriage by reading your books, by taking courses, by doing stuff that is well-written and doesn't have really shaming messages in it, because I think that's the problem with a lot of marriage stuff out there is it just makes you feel worse. But your stuff yeah. is really um, encouraging. And I know that with my own friends, as we've, as a kind of a group of us who have all had babies recently, and I used the thought um, from the Nine Thoughts book a lot that your husband is your neighbor. And I think that we as young moms who are so stressed and are dealing with all of these changes, it's a huge um, difficulty for us to remember that our husband is our neighbor and going back to that teaching is really helpful. And so mm -hmm. I, I know that for my own life, I've found that my marriage is better because I work on the blog and it was really encouraging to see that um, message borne out in hard numbers. Yeah, well, that's cool. So thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, buy my books and buy my courses because they'll help your marriage. <laughs> but that's not really the point I'm trying to make. So of course, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, but the bigger thing that I, that I want to say and the point I'm really trying to make for today is you can know everything about marriage. But the people who change are the ones who put it into practice. The people who invest in their marriage, who decide I'm actually going to do something about this. When I look back on my own marriage, there are several times where I've made relatively small changes in my life that have made a tremendous difference in everything. Um, probably the biggest one was when the kids were probably three and one and I decided to give up TV and cancel our cable. Uh, it was right after I had read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and I realized how much time I was wasting watching television. And I took that time and that's when I actually started writing magazine articles and went into books, started speaking, started blogging, all of that. I would never have done any of this if I had been watching TV to the same extent that I had before. Because as soon as I got rid of TV, suddenly I had all this time. I still watch TV. My husband and I still watch Netflix. It's not like we don't do that anymore, but um, it's just not the same as it was then. And because I gave that up, I found much more time for the things in my life that mattered. For me lately, it's you know, over the last few years, it's been giving up reading the news because I would spend a lot of time getting down rabbit holes on blogs about news and on news sites and just getting really angry about things that I could do nothing about. Because while I can vote, that's really about all I can do, especially for countries that I don't even live in because I was getting way too caught up in American news. Um, and so quitting news has allowed me to spend a lot more time on the blog. And it's funny, you can see an impact because I, I can look at the different times in my life where I have quit news and what the blog traffic has gone and the quality of blog posts. And then I can see where I started reading news again and the quality of blog posts dropped. So I'm hoping I don't, I don't take up that habit again. Another big one I've done is just stop working after 6 p.m. And that just gives Keith and I evenings together, which is so important. And I, it's hard when you work at home to not do work all the time because it's always there. So that's been a huge change. Um, Keith and I just sharing a high-low every day. 
And I talk about that a lot on the blog. You know, what was the what, what was the time today where you felt the most in the groove? And what was the time that you felt the most discouraged? And as we do that, you learn more about yourself. You learn more about your spouse's emotional um, state. And it's not like you have to share absolutely everything that happened that day. So it doesn't take that long, but it's important. You know, so all of these, they're just small things. Um, even paring down my wardrobe to a capsule wardrobe a couple of years ago just makes me feel so much more put together. Um, and that gives me more confidence. So they're not huge, really, in the broad scheme of things, but these things matter. And that's why we've actually instituted a big change on the blog. I've decided I really want to focus on action steps. Yes, beliefs are important, and there's still going to be a ton of teaching because our beliefs do influence our actions. But we got to get back to what changes are we going to make. And so every week, I'm hoping to put an actionable post, a weekly challenge that you can do with me. And there'll be a chance to talk about that challenge on Facebook, hopefully on the newsletter and my email list. If you're not signed up, there's a link where you can do that in the blog post for this podcast. But there's going to be prizes for people who have done that challenge and told me how it's gone this week. Um, And I just want to encourage all of us to try small things. A lot of those challenges, I'm going to have many different ideas. And just remember that the best way to change your marriage is not to change everything, is to change one thing and do it consistently and do it well. That's what I said in my Boost Your Libido uh, course as well, is like choose one thing this week and do that one thing. Don't try all the suggestions. When you try all the suggestions, it's overwhelming and you won't do any of them well. But if you can find one thing, do that. So when you see a list of 10 things, I'm not telling you to do all 10 things. I'm just throwing out 10 things. <laughs> and it could be that one of them is really going to resonate with you. And that's the one you should tackle. I want to help you build a better marriage. Okay, 2,776 posts later, I've been trying. <laughs> and, and now moving forward, let's look at how we can do a lot more action steps Take a look at some of the courses for sure, because those are full of action steps. Uh, But even as part of the blog and podcast community, try to actually put small things into practice, because it's those small things that are actually going to change a marriage far more than just knowing all the stuff you should do, but not putting it into practice. Our churches are filled with Christian patty and sores about marriage. Something wrong? Pray about it. Is he watching porn? Have more sex. Is he not leading? Submit more. Pat answers sometimes work, but not always. And God doesn't work in pat answers. He works in the messiness of life. Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage is my book where I get a little messy. Join me in my journey away from pat answers and towards healthy, authentic marriages. Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. Because your marriage should be great. I got a comment from the podcast last week that came in that was really interesting. Both Rebecca and I ended up replying to the comment separately, and I thought I'd bring Rebecca on here, and we can just talk about it, because it was really, I think it's something that a lot of women struggle with. So, hey, Becca. Hello. Do you, would you like to read the comment for us? I would love to read the comment. Okay, so here's what she says. She says, I'm wondering if anyone can give me advice on how I can beat my insecurities regarding the noticing versus lusting issue. And, and what she means by that, uh, I talked about it in the podcast last week, but what I was saying is that just because a guy notices a woman is beautiful does not mean he's lusting after her. You can notice she's beautiful and then turn away and do absolutely nothing else with that thought. Yeah, okay. a man doesn't necessarily want to sleep with every single woman he finds attractive. Exactly. Okay, yeah. go ahead. 
So then she says, I'm married to an incredible godly man who is so diligent in protecting our marriage and honoring me with his eyes. I realize that noticing women isn't wrong, but I'm still struggling with feeling inadequate slash less pretty if my husband does think someone is cute or notice them. I think my insecurities are hurting our marriage, though, because he is constantly on guard, so he won't unintentionally hurt me. But I don't want him to feel stressed out all the time, as though seeing a woman who's dressed inappropriately is wrong. I guess I'm fighting against myself, because I want him to have the freedom to just enjoy life and not be scared of hurting me, but I have to be honest with him and that it does still hurt. I tell him it's an issue with me that I need to get over, but he cares about me so much that he's afraid to even think a woman is pretty. That's not how I want our marriage to be. I know he thinks I'm the most beautiful woman in the world. He tells and shows me all the time, but I still wrestle with deep insecurities. Do you have any advice? Okay. First of all, what a great guy. I know. Like, kudos, kudos to the men Such out there. Such a sweetheart. Who care about their wives and who really want them to feel beautiful and loved and cherished so great guy here and I love too the fact that she's owning the problem she's Mm -hmm. saying okay I know that I'm totally messed up here but I don't know how to get not messed up so (laughs) um you know just as I said in the main segment your actions follow your beliefs and I think what's happening here is a fundamental belief she has that's flawed and if we can deal with that fundamental belief we would get somewhere so I mean what what I'd say is that there is a big misunderstanding that sex is primarily about the physical and about what a woman looks like. And that's pretty obvious because that's what our society says and it's everywhere, right? There's a lot of pressure on women to be beautiful. But, you know, if you understand that sex at its heart is about this emotional and spiritual connection as well as a physical connection. And so just because someone is pretty doesn't have to mean anything. Like, like, okay, Ryan, I've used this example before. Ryan Reynolds, really good looking guy. Okay. I find him attractive. If he ever tried to kiss me, I would be grossed out. (laughs) Okay. Not, not because he's not attractive, but because I can't picture kissing anyone that's not my husband. Mm -hmm. And you know, and that may sound odd to some people, but you know, it's the truth. Like you, I, I think you can find someone attractive. You can even be attracted to someone and have that not mean that you want to sleep with them. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and so I think we just need to go back to what sex really is, is that it's this whole connection. It's about a whole package that encompasses the whole relationship, not just whether you find someone attractive. So if your husband finds someone attractive, it doesn't, mean that he doesn't want you first and foremost and in fact in fact okay and this is something you and I talk about a lot Becca like even if he finds another woman more attractive than you it doesn't mean he wants to sleep with them more Mm -hmm. than he wants to sleep with you exactly that is something that I have you know very glad that I have a very good understanding of as now a seven and a half month pregnant woman who is getting a lot of stretch marks and cellulite right now (laughs) you know we're just we're just we're just saying I'm not at my peak. Okay. (laughs) And that's okay. That's fine. But it's, it's something where if you're, if you're able to fully understand that, that just the fact that your husband doesn't necessarily like like, having women out there who are more attractive than you does not take away your own value in your husband's eyes or, or in the, in reality in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say, I think I, I totally agree with what you're saying that, you know, we've, we've, reduce sex to something that's only physical and so then you know if someone has more physical prowess in any area they seem like they're a better fit for 
you know, sex. And so it's like, well, then am I not as good? Is this mean that I'm less good? If my husband finds someone else attractive, have I now lost points and need to earn them back? Or like, they're, they're, it, yeah, I get into this weird competition, but I actually would take it a little bit further. And I don't actually know if this is all about sex with women. Uh-huh. Because for me, I think this all comes down to the fact that women, more so than men, and men are getting it more and more, unfortunately, in the current age, but women right now are told again and again and again that their primary value is in how they look. Right. Right? And so I don't actually know if this is about sex as much as it is about love and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Because I think women are primed to believe that unless they are beautiful, they are not worthy of love and acceptance. Now, you wouldn't go into a marriage and assume if someone else was a better piano player than you, they were automatically more, they're they like competition, right? right. Or they, they, they took away from your stance in your husband's eyes. Like, oh, I could never play piano as good as that kid, right? right. Like, you would never think that because we haven't been raised in this culture that says, you know, only the best piano players are important. Right. 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 But, and I know that's a kind of a weird example, but even things like intelligence and stuff like that, those even aren't as Mm -hmm. big of a deal in the same way. Like you can go, you can be part of, you know, an academic community and you can maybe get a little insecure around some of the super smart ones, but you're not necessarily thinking your husband is going to run off with the keynote speaker. Yes. Right. Because she's just so brilliant. But we are in this culture that says to women, you're to this, you're not enough this, you need to look this way. Um, you're, you're dressing frumpy, um, because you just will never be able to look pretty. Um, like, unless you buy this diet pill, unless you wear these clothes, unless you show this much of, um, you know, your foot in this particular shoe, it will not look nicely enough with that dress. Like, it's just all these ridiculous small little things that are bombarded with us since we're like six years old, that I Mm -hmm. think women have internalized the idea that unless I am the prettiest, I am not valuable in that person's eyes. Right. Because un- because when your value is entirely in what you look like, someone else being prettier than you is actually an affront to your own identity and your yeah. value. Because the thing is, if your husband finds someone prettier than you, then automatically, logically, your husband finds her more valuable than you and he's settling for you. Right. Because that's the most important part of your identity is what you've been taught. Mm-hmm. And so if women are able to break out of this idea that they have to be the prettiest in order to appreciate their beauty, and, and, and this is all a very unconscious thing, I think, because it's something that I've had to deal with and that I found was a very unconscious thing until I kind of actually labeled it in myself. And then when I was able to actually face it head on and say, hey, I'm okay not being the absolute most gorgeous person in every room I ever walk into, you know, <laughs> and you, you accept yeah. that. You stop seeing women as the competition. You stop seeing other women as potential um, threats to your marriage. You stop seeing other women as measuring sticks where you're falling short. And it does become something similar to how well someone plays piano or how smart someone is or how fast they are at running, right? It's just one part of their personality. And so then when your husband has a coworker or gets this new boss who is just a total bombshell. Like, just we're talking super attractive and stuff. It's not as big of a deal because you Mm -hmm. know she's never going to be you no matter what. So it doesn't even matter because you know that your value is in more than what you look like. And so if your husband is around someone who's attractive, even if you find someone attractive, it doesn't threaten 
you because it doesn't have anything to do with your value. It doesn't have anything to do with your identity in Christ, your identity as just you as a person or your identity as a wife either. Yeah. Because you are more than your looks. I love that. I don't even know what I want to add to it except to say, ladies, yeah, you are more than your looks. Find your value and believe it. Own it and believe it. Exactly. And the funny thing is, once you take away the power from the whole prettiness conversation and you stop comparing and stop trying to be the prettiest or putting that pressure on yourself to look your best all of the time, you actually can start to appreciate your body a lot more because you give yourself permission to not be perfect and to embrace the imperfections. Yeah, because if you feel like you have to be perfect and then you know you're not, then your body just becomes the enemy. a constant guilt trip. Yeah, an enemy, a constant guilt trip. And that's what we're trying to get away from this this month as we, we've been talking on the blog a lot about choosing lingerie that just makes you feel good about yourself. Exactly. And feeling good about yourself doesn't mean you think you're the prettiest. Or that you're, you necessarily think, you know, you have to look the same as someone else. Mm-hmm. It just means you put something on and you feel like you. Yeah, you feel like... You know, I'm, I'm looking good. I'm confident. I respect myself. You know, I know that I am made to be exactly who I am. And that's what it's all about. And that is the woman that your husband loves dearly. Exactly. So let him love you. And don't worry if he thinks someone else is pretty. Because he really thinks that you're the best anyway. Like this podcast? Then you'd love the blog. Join us at tolovehonorandvacuum.com, where Sheila blogs every weekday about marriage, faith, and, of course, sex. At the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community, we deal with the messiness of life. We don't traffic in pat answers. Join us for thought-provoking posts, discussion starters, and great challenges to make your marriage and your love life strong. I got to read a question for you today. And this one's from a guy. He says, my girlfriend and I are 24 years old and we're both strong believers. We met a year ago and have been dating for six months, almost entirely long distance. She lives with her parents in a country on the other side of the world. And I live by myself in the U.S. She's a strong Christian, a hard worker and has amazing character. Our plan is for me to move to where she is soon once I find a job there. Both of her parents and both of my parents are also strong Christians. My mom, dad, and her mother are happy for us and think we're a good match. However, her father doesn't want us to officially start dating until I first move there, and he has a few years to assess my character. He believes his responsibility as a father involves testing my character and knowledge of the Bible and love for God over the course of several years before giving his blessing for us to officially start dating. The last time I visited my girlfriend's family, her father wouldn't even talk with me about the possibility of me and her officially dating. Nearly everyone in her community and mine think that it's unrealistic for me to move across the world for a woman who isn't allowed to date me, but her father will not change her mind. He uses verses such as Ephesians 6 verse 1, which is the one about children obeying your parents, and the story of Isaac and Rebecca to defend his position. I am very concerned about moving across the world to pursue this woman while her father is adamantly against us dating. What do you think we should do? I think this one comes down to what she thinks. I mean, isn't that what y'all think? Okay, this woman's 24 years old. She is old enough to decide whether she wants to date this man and marry this man. And she cannot expect a man that she is dating to move across the world if she is giving veto power to her father as to whether or not she will marry him. It is wonderful to want your parents' blessing. I certainly wanted my children to consult me when they were getting married. And I certainly um, wanted to be able to give them my blessing. And I did for both of them. But... I did not have to 
in order for them to get married because they are adults. And once you're adults, it is your decision. So I think the issue here is far less about what the father thinks and far more about what his girlfriend thinks. Because if she is willing to say, you know, I want to marry you and I'm dating you regardless. And I hope my dad comes on board, but whether or not he does, I'm willing to commit to you. Then sure, if you think this is the right person, move. But if she's going to say, I may love you, but it really depends what my dad says and I have to honor my dad, then that is two red flags for me. One, it's a red flag that the marriage may not happen even if she does love you. But two, it's a red flag that I'm not sure where her priorities are. I think this idea that a father has the complete authority over his child's life once the child is 24, like we're not talking about an 18 or 19 year old here, is problematic. And the fact that she still lives at home and is willingly putting herself under her father's authority, I don't have a problem with people doing that in general, if that's what they want to do, I think living at home can be a great way to save money. Um, but I do think once you're an adult, God expects you to follow him. And God expects you to seek out God's voice and to make decisions and to say, I am not going to make a decision because I am a woman and I am going to be under someone else's authority. Well, that makes me wonder how you would actually act in marriage. Uh, and I know that there's different views on this. And I am not trying to say that parents shouldn't matter. Believe me, I'm not because I am very close to my daughters and I certainly want to matter in their lives. But I also am quite aware that once they're adults, I am not the final authority and neither was my husband. In fact, we even had it that in their last year of living at home, there were no rules. Uh, because we wanted them to have the experience of being able to entirely make their own decisions on their own consciences based on their own relationships with God before they moved out. And we encouraged them to take responsibility for their lives and to seek out God's voice because I firmly believe that when you know the Holy Spirit, when you know Jesus, he can tell you what to do. So to me, the issue here is far less what the father thinks and far more about the daughter's uh, reluctance to make her own decisions to decide herself whether she is going to date or marry this man. I would not move across the world unless the one that I was moving to was prepared to say, I love you and I'm going to do what it takes to make this relationship work. Until she says that, I would not go. I really wouldn't. I don't think it's about the dad here. I think it's about the daughter's idea of what her role is. And do you really want to marry someone who is going to believe that you are their ultimate authority and may not necessarily speak up on her own behalf. I don't know that that's a tremendously helpful marriage either. So I would really look at that doctrine and encourage her to think more about what it means to be a follower of Christ and how being a follower of Christ means you follow Christ. <laughs> it really is that simple. You're 24 years old. You can hear the Holy Spirit. If you love Jesus, follow him wholeheartedly. Do what he tells you to do. If he's telling her that she should listen to her dad, okay, I believe that that can happen. But if it's just simply that she believes she should listen to her dad because that's what her dad has always told her and she's afraid to go against that, mm, not so comfortable with that. And that's just what I think. I would love to know what more of you think. So remember, go visit uh, this podcast post that is on my blog and leave a note in the comments. And just one more thing before I put this one aside, I know that there are 
actually a lot of girls who are stuck in families like this, and I actually believe this can be a form of abuse, called the stay-at-home daughter movement, where girls are not allowed to think for themselves and must listen to their father's authority until they're married, at which point their authority switches to their husband, so they're always under someone's authority and they're never able to make decisions for themselves, think for themselves, act for themselves. If you're there, I just want you to hear me on this, that that's not Jesus' will. It really isn't. God made you with your own brain, your own giftings, your own conscience, your own uh, ability to make decisions, and God does not expect women to be under men. And so please, if that's where you are, seek out a church uh, which teaches that you are of infinite worth and that you are not just an extension of a man, but that you in and of yourself were created for a purpose. Someone else does not need to control you. I just feel for girls in this situation, and I feel for this guy. Uh, and I would encourage him to slowly help her to start reevaluating her doctrine so that maybe she can get free from this oppressive control that she's under and learn that it's okay to follow Jesus and to, and to listen to him myself. I don't need a mediator between me and God. If you were to open your underwear drawer, what would you find? Is it scary? Does your pajama drawer make you just cringe? Well, that is your challenge for this week. Even though I've done lots of challenges before, we're now moving on to a new era on the blog. And so that is our weekly challenge to clean out your lingerie drawers. I've got a great post on it on that ran on Tuesday. I will link to it in this podcast description, but 10 things you need to throw out of your lingerie drawer right now. So read that post, take the challenge, and then tune in on Facebook and on my Friday email to tell me how you've done. Thanks for joining me on the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast this week, where I'm encouraging you to make the changes you need to. So join my weekly challenge and clean out that lingerie drawer. I'm so excited to hear what you have accomplished. Uh, Decide that you're going to invest in your marriage. But most of all, what underlies everything I do, make sure you're running after Jesus and listening to Jesus yourself, not just listening to what other people tell you that your life should look like. When you give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit can speak to you too. So find me explaining this more at tolovehonorandvacuum.com, the blog, and remember to rate and subscribe to this podcast, and I will see you again next week.